Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Van Lehman, a fellow Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal. I'm Aaron Sperriam, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And Aaron, how are you doing today? I'm doing. I'm. I'm. I'm sure I sound terrible. I've like my kid. My kid gave me an illness for a change. Why? So. so. When when does he stop giving you illnesses? Five six later. Yeah. So you have like five years. Of, so you have, how many more years yeah. of this do you have of being well, constantly sick? Probably at some point I'll have another kid. So you got to add a couple of years on that. Oh, that's terrible. That's that's unfortunate. Have, I mean, you know, it's 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 just part of the process. Yeah, I'm I'm I haven't been sick, but I've been tired because so I think I with toddlers. Yeah, Arguably, well, you're, well, you're reporting on, yeah. Right. You're See, I'm reporting on toddlers. on toddlers, and that's what's been keeping me busy. The Stanford law stuff yeah. just won't. We're, we're recording this on th- Thursday, March 16th, and I spent all weekend and the first half of this week just basically tracking down things about Stanford. Have you been, have you been out there yet? Are you going to go? I, I actually am going out there in like a week for something that was already scheduled well before this all started, just kind of independently. Um, it's a very large campus. Yeah, I mean... It's, and, a, it's, a large, it's the largest campus in the Western Hemisphere. Is that true? Okay. It I is, mean, yes. It's the I second mean, largest campus after the University of it's, Moscow it's because a, they it's count a, the particle accelerator. It's, 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 you know, it's... People are like, well, you know, they're toddlers, like, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, they are, but also they... Not only are they going to become America's future lawyers, but my understanding is that a disproportionate number of Stanford law grads end up working in San Francisco, politics, DA's offices, things like that. So, you know, when you go to San Francisco and you see people defecating on the street or just stealing things in broad daylight or perhaps committing more violent offenses, know that there are a bunch of Stanford law grads who already think that those people should face zero consequences for their actions, just like they think that they should face zero consequences for shouting down a federal judge. And there's about to be a whole lot more of those people running California politics and bringing their, I don't think even soft on crime policies covers it. More like, more like, you know, more like liquid on crime. It's not just soft. It's like there's literally no physical substance to it. Liquid on crime policies. Speaking speaking, speaking of segues. Speaking of which, Charles, (laughs) our our resident advocate for executing or otherwise incapacitating criminals, what are we talking about today? So today we're talking about criminal justice, the criminal justice system, obviously sort of in the context of rising crime. And particularly if, if you know, I'm going to get really to the nitty gritty, we're really talking about an increase in serious violent crime, particularly homicide and shootings over the past three years in the United States, which has been a live political issue. And of course, at the same time, that's been juxtaposed against somebody even argue causally related to an increase in antipathy towards the police and the criminal justice system fostered by the self-same progressives. That's one interpretation of the facts my interpretation of the facts or whatever. But, you know, I think I think that's sort of the short run stuff. What we're really interested in getting into with our guest today is 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 how to how he thinks about the criminal justice system, how it works, how it doesn't work, with sort of a broader eye towards how we ended up where we are today, both sort of the good and the bad, how how the system actually functions and how changes to it can improve it or imperil it. It's a fairly broad topic. Aaron, you know, how, what, what are you, what are you coming into this conversation with? What are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, this is more your area of expertise than mine, although I think we have broadly similar worldviews and intuitions about it. Something Aaron's got to live on. God damn it, Charles. No, but I would say this, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this in a sec, but I have been very interested in the crackdown in El Salvador on their crime problem. And in particular, I'm interested in sort of the trade-off between civil liberties and civil peace, as well as kind of the preconditions, the social contractarian preconditions for civil liberties. You know, when you look at homicide rates in the worst parts of the worst U.S. cities, they, the the likelihood of being killed by homicide there, I mean, mean it's higher than the likelihood that you're going to be killed if you're a civilian living in Ukraine. And in, and I, there's various statistics, like the worst parts of Baltimore are like more dangerous than Iraq or Afghanistan during the wars there. People will refer to the south side of Chicago as a war zone. And statistically speaking, that's basically true. It is, in fact, behind a veil of ignorance, more dangerous to be born in the south side of Chicago than it is to be born uh, in some war-torn areas of the third world or the kind of 
second world, maybe in the case of Ukraine. And to me, that raises the question of whether in those jurisdictions, kind of the normal assumptions of liberalism and civil liberties really are appropriate. And, you know, I don't have a strong view on this, but I'll just say it to kind of provoke whether whether the whole idea that we should care that much about criminal civil liberties is kind of an artifact of a of a relatively peaceful first world civilization that in fact does not exist in various U.S. localities. And what are the implications of that? I don't really know, but I think it's something that a lot of civil libertarians don't take seriously enough. The idea that the preconditions for this kind of small liberal government non-interference just doesn't even exist in a meaningful way. And that does make me wonder, you know, should we be not going full El Salvador, but perhaps taking a page from from their example and in a limited context, applying it to the most the most chaotic of our U.S. cities, because I really don't think people appreciate enough just how bad they are. That's my that's my provocative take that will hopefully not get me canceled. <laughs> okay. Well, again, I, I'm not I endorsing. Don't. I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying people should take I'm the case saying, for that more seriously as an intellectual matter than I think they currently do. Yeah. No. I mean, you know, look. Part of part of I'm interested. Part of part of you know. Obviously, I work on this topic all day, but but part of what I think that a lot of our listeners are under the age of, I would guess under the age of 30, certainly the age of 40, which means that they do not remember how bad crime used to be in the United States. I think that's a really important social fact. Probably they have a sense of it because they listen to the show, which means they're selected on being interested in the topic. But I think, you know, part of part of what our goal is to get into with our guest is sort of thinking about how crime is sorted out as a discrete problem, different from poverty or mental illness or drug use or homelessness, other such pathologies, how the management of crime is thought about as a discrete problem and how we can sort of get that right or get that wrong and what the implications are of getting that right or getting that wrong. You know, he's written about sort of the follies of the past 10, 15 years of quote unquote criminal justice reform. And, you know, I think that, that has to be situated in a, in, in a positive case for here's, here's why it makes sense to think of criminal justice as a discrete policy area. So that's where I let it stop. A good guy, the best guy to talk about all this with is our guest, Rafael Mangual is the Nick O'Neill Fellow and Head of Research at the Policing and Public Safety Initiative at the Manhattan Institute, which means, like, I kind of report to him. So, you know, I have to be nice to him. A contributing editor to City Journal and member of the Council of Criminal Justice, his first book, Criminal Injustice, was released in July 2022. Ralph, welcome to Institutionalized. It's a pleasure to be here with both of you. I'm a huge fan, as you know. <laughs> so we like to open with a, with a provocative question. Aaron already sort of got into this, but, like, let's talk about... El Salvador. Yeah. So so for those three listeners who are in the dark on this story, President of Salvador, Nayib Bukele, implemented a nationwide gang crackdown, which he attributes to which he attributes the dramatic reduction in homicide the country has seen over the past couple of years. What do you make of what do you make of this policy approach? Both do you buy the story and also separately, you know, what 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 do you make of it as an approach in general? Well, I definitely buy the story. I don't think it's a coincidence that you round up that many people throw them in cages and don't have an impact on crime, especially when at least, you know, given the videos I've seen, half of them have, you know, the number 13 tattooed on their bald heads. You know, obviously, I, I don't endorse that as an approach. I mean, one of the things that I enjoy most about living in this country is that, you know, we still have a kind of institutional commitment to the idea of civil liberties and, you know, putting a burden on government before it can infringe on those liberties. But I think the biggest lesson here from El Salvador is like, you know, just a reminder that basic incapacitation works, right? The, the question is, is whether you have to do it the way that El Salvador does it in order to get benefits. And what's different about the United States and what's different about, you know, modern times versus, say, the 1970s is that we can pursue meaningful incapacitation in a way that produces real benefits without having to be dragnet. You don't have to round up everybody that looks like a gangbanger and throw them away for some indefinite period of time. I mean, you know, Charles, you know this already, but you know, I assume some of your listeners don't. Crime is such a 
it's such a narrow phenomenon. Like it's not something the vast majority of Americans really have an idea about. It concentrates in tiny, tiny, tiny slices of American cities, and it mostly affects very small social networks of people, right? You can, I mean, there's, there was a, a problem assessment in Oakland, for example, on gun violence. I think they found that like 0.1% of the population in that city was responsible for like 40 plus percent of all the shootings. What that means is that I think we have the sophistication and resources here in America to be able to identify who the people are that are driving the problem in the places where the problem is most acute and then work to incapacitate them in legal ways that are consistent with the sort of system of civil liberties that we've erected through our constitution. What, what I, I think, so, so yeah, what, what El Salvador teaches us is that incapacitation matters. What it shouldn't teach us, what I hope people don't come away with, is that the only way to achieve that goal is to, you know, take a flamethrower to an anthill. Right. It's, it's probably worth underscoring here that the United States is a far more developed country with a set of institutional preconditions that don't really obtain in El Salvador. Exactly. I wanted to just zoom on one in on one quick statistic you mentioned. You, know, you said it's like 0.1% of people in Oakland responsible for 40% of the homicides. We, we often hear about how you know, allegedly tough on crime policies disproportionately impact African-Americans. But even if you zoom in on the African-American community, I take it I'm right in assuming that, I mean, the number of African-Americans who commit crimes is still, it's a tiny minority of the African-Americans in the country, right? Very, very small. Right. Very like, small. Like if every one of those people were thrown in jail tomorrow, the vast, vast, vast majority of black people would not be in jail. Right. Like th this is an important stage setting thing. I think that it's worth. Yeah. Well, it's very important, but it, it actually it brings up an, uh, you know, another important point, which is like at the root of people's weariness here in the U.S. about an incapacitation first approach is this idea that the externalities are going to disproportionately affect minority communities, especially black men. That's true to a degree, which is to say that if you concentrate enforcement resources in response to where crime concentrates, well, then you're disproportionately going to have interactions with any demographic groups that are overrepresented in those places. And, you know, if we're just being honest about the data, that means disproportionately black males. But here's the thing that people don't fully realize is that black males are also disproportionately victimized by this kind of crime problem. So to the extent that they disproportionately bear the costs associated with increased enforcement, they're also going to disproportionately enjoy the benefits. And that's the part of the story that we, and I say, you know, I'm using the royal we there, just the people on our side of this debate haven't been very good at telling, right? I mean, there's, there's a, a, a chart that I mean, I literally brought tears in my eyes the first time I, I saw it. It was it was in an article from the Wall Street Journal, but it, it was taken out of a study that the the article in the journal was reporting on that was published in JAMA Network, and it was looking at the rate of firearm homicide for different demographic groups. And it looked this chart depicts the rate of firearm homicides for men by race. So you know you have one line is black men, one line is white men, the other line is Hispanic men. And the line for black men in 1990, this takes you from 1990 to 2021, it starts at the very, very top of the chart. It's like almost at 60 per 100,000 is the, the rate. And then through the mid-1990s, you see this sharp, sharp drop. And there's this you know, leveling off period through the 2000s. And then right around 2015, it starts ticking up. And then, of course, huge upshot in 2020 and 2021 to the point that literally the peak the two, the two peaks of the U in that graph are basically on the same level, which means that for black males, the firearm homicide rate is just as bad as it's ever been in the last 30 plus years, which means we've erased all of the progress. And it was a lot of progress. I mean, that U is very, very deep. And there's a lot of white space there, which represents thousands and thousands and thousands of years of lives saved. And all of that, has been eroded. And so I think you were right to note that, you know, 
to, to have that cautionary note that, that you know, a, a robust enforcement approach doesn't necessarily mean that every black male is going to get locked up, right? Or, and, and it's, but the reason that I think you felt the need to make that point is that you understand intuitively that there is a group of people who are suspicious of, you know, this call for a more robust approach to enforcement because of what they think it will mean for the black community. But I don't think they have the full picture in their head. And, you know, the more that they delay on this, I fear that the more harm is going to be done. And that harm, I think, is perfectly depicted by that graph. I mean, you know, you hear people all the time, even still say, oh, you know, crime's not as bad as it is and as it was in the 1990s. And so the question that I always ask in response is for who? Right. If you're living in one of the places where the murder rate, you know, has set a new record in the last three years, well, crime's worse than it's ever been. And if you're a member of one of the demographic groups living in one of those pockets of concentrated crime, you are as unsafe as you've ever, as anyone in your shoes has been in recent history. And, and that really should be driving the conversation. And so, you know, I think in your guys' intro, you hit it right on, you hit the nail right on the head just by suggesting that at the core of this debate is really a, a tug of war about, you know, how do we weigh civil liberties against, you know, the, the, the safety that we want to pursue through the criminal justice system. But one of the things I don't think, you know, self-identified civil libertarians fully appreciate is that, like, the government is not the only entity that can violate your liberty interests, right? The run-of-the-mill criminal can also violate your right to bodily integrity, your right to property, your right to, you know, your own home. You know, I don't, I don't think anyone who's been seriously victimized by crime would say that, you know, that, 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 that sense of, of violation that they experienced would have been worse if it was a government agent. Right. And so the question I think we have to ask in response is like, well, who poses the biggest threat to our civil liberties right now? Is it, you know, government agencies or, or is it the sort of run of the mill criminal? And, you know, I think the statistics tell that story very, very clearly. So just to just to talk a little about context, one of the, you know, I, I alluded to the intro, you alluded to sort of this, this dramatic change in crime over the past half century, which I think comes up on this show, but, you know, is, is really sort of worth drilling down on in the story, you know, that the shadow in which all contemporary criminal justice policy lives is, is sort of the remembrance of how things bad were how bad things were in the 80s and 90s. So can you talk a little bit, just A, about that increase, about that wave, but then B, more substantially about your theory of how it abated? Yeah, I mean, well, the 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 wave really crested in the early 90s, but it's it started in the 60s, right? So in the mid-1960s, you start to see this deterioration in public order and public safety, an increase in riots. You had the Watts riots in 65. You had riots in Detroit in 68. You had the riots in Chicago during the Democratic primary convention. And so you get this, this point, you know, within maybe 15 years after this, you know, huge um, shift in terms of urbanization that started in the 1920s to the 50s, where cities become these, you know, massive hotspots for a disorder problem that they weren't really prepared for and really needed to build an infrastructure around. And there was a delay in responding to that increase in crime. I think part of the delay was that it was just so unnatural. But, you know, I think part of it was also the fact that in the 1960s, this country was having a national conversation about race, about, you know, institutions like the police and the criminal justice system. And so there was, as there is today, a lot of social resistance. And so it took, you know, about 25 years for the system to really realign itself in a way that 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 sort of reflected a mission of you know crime control as as being the primary goal and so you know things got really really bad for 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 lots of america i mean there's a i write about it in the book but there's there's this episode during the 1977 world series that became an infamous moment for new york where howard cosell who was you know one of the famous sports announcers of the time is announcing the World Series and they're coming back from a commercial break. And as they normally do, even still today, you know, the, the camera pans out from the stadium, you know, from a helicopter view and takes a broader view of the Bronx. And all you see are buildings on fire, literally. And, you know, in a moment of candor and perhaps because there was nothing else to be said, Howard Cosell famously says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning. And that became, you know, the moment no, that... to say that. 
What was that? It's apocryphal. Continue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's a know, good story. Makes the it, point. <laughs> it, yeah, but but that's really what it was like. I mean, if you drove through the outer boroughs of New York City, you know, especially the Bronx in the 1970s and 80s and even early 90s, I mean, there were like it looked like a war zone, literally. I mean, burned out buildings, entire city blocks that were essentially vacant lots, you know, abandoned properties, you know, dark streets. I mean, and and so you know that that disorder really created a lot of fear. And that fear was substantiated by the insanely high levels of crime that, you know, cities like New York and Detroit and Chicago and Philadelphia were experiencing back then. And so, you know, all of that kind of piled on for decades. And then in the, you know, 1980s, during the Reagan administration, you started to see the the tide kind of shift a little bit. And so you had, you know, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 get passed. You had mandatory minimums. You had you started to see three strikes regimes and truth and sentencing regimes, you know, start to get adopted in jurisdictions around the country. And, you know, so my theory of the case in terms of how the massive crime decline of the 1990s happened is that, you know, that was the result of a, you know, paradigm shift in enforcement. Policing became something that changed from an institution that reacted to crime to one that actively sought to prevent it by enforcing public order offenses, by ramping up the number of arrests and enforcement actions taken, things like stops and frisks, you know, using data to deploy resources where they were needed the most and to identify patterns and better close cases. And then you had, you know, technological advances that made prosecutions easier to come by. You had investments in the criminal justice system, both from you know the federal government, but also from reorientations at the state government level in terms of budgeting priorities. And those investments, you know, added more police officers to the street and, you know, gave them more tools to work with. And then at the same time, those criminal justice shifts meant that when you were arrested and prosecuted, you were going to go away for a long time. And, you know, so I'm pretty convinced by the research out there that suggests that, you know, policing and incarceration were the two kind of primary drivers of the violent crime decline in the 1990s. Incarceration, mostly through the incapacitation effect that it has, right? If someone's locked up, they can't harm anyone outside of that institution unless they escape, which is, you know, rare. And, you know, police presence tends to have a deterrent effect on crime, right? I mean, most people who are going to, you know, burglarize a store tend to look around for a little bit. They have lookouts for a reason, right? And so, you know, when you have more police presence, crime goes down. When those police are more proactive, using the tools and the knowledge that they were gaining to develop best practices, you know, I think all of that kind of combined to drive a crime decline that represents, in my opinion, the single most important achievement in urban American history. I mean, there really is no better story of government success than getting crime under control in the 1980s and 90s. So before we drill down into that and this kind of institutional realignment that lowered crime rates, I want to return for a sec to the explosion of crime in the 1960s. It's obviously a very big sociological question that we're not going to be able to cover in, in depth, but can you just sort of briefly canvas what you think were the most important drivers of that explosion in crime? Yeah, I think urbanization was a huge part of it. You know, as people moved into city centers, you know, that created conditions that were more conducive to crime than the sort of physical conditions in, you know, exurban environments in the South. And so you know, the, the the migration into American cities and the concentration of the population in big metro areas, you know, it was important in the following respect. I mean, for crime to thrive, you know, I'm a, I'm a subscriber to the routine activities theory of crime, which Charles will know, but, you know, it, the routine activities theory posits that for crime to thrive, you need three things. You need motivated offenders, you need vulnerable targets, and you need an absence of capable guardians, right? Police would be sort of the obvious form of capable guardians, but it can be also just eyes on the street, you know. And so in an urban environment, right, what you, what you need to sort of get away with crime is you need a sense of anonymity, right? So you need a collection of targets that's big enough, right? But you also need enough density 
to be able to disappear into a crowd and get away, right? If you live in a small town of a thousand people and you hold up a liquor store, everyone's going to know, you know, who it is. They probably know your voice and they know your parents, right? And, and so the shift of the country into, you know, urban living, I think, created conditions that, you know, were just far more conducive to the kinds of street crime that we saw really explode. At the same time, we saw the advent of a gang culture that really came about, I think, as a result of this, you know, in cities like Los Angeles and Chicago and Detroit, you know, as people were coming into those cities from other parts of the country, they were sort of, you know, forming their own tribes with one another in those cities, which I think led to, you know, the development of a gang culture that, you know, ended up being, I think, a huge and still is today a huge driver of, of really serious violence. You know, you couple that with the the sort of, you know, social justice movements of the time, which I think made it harder to justify, you know, the kind of investments that we saw in the criminal justice system in the 1990s at the time. I think there was a lot of skepticism and for good reason, right, of police. I mean, you know, you could in the 1960s, you could watch, you know, videos of, of cops, you know, beating black people who were marching and it happened yesterday, right? It wasn't like something that you were far removed from. And so that skepticism, I think, was really warranted at the time. And so, you know, I think those were really kind of the biggest drivers. Obviously, there were demographic shifts, right? The number of, you know, young men in the population at the time, you know, there's some theories about sort of post-war you know, procreation and, and how that that affected population patterns, which, you know, I'm sure played a role. Although, you know, some people predicted that in the 1990s, that because there were going to be so many more young men that, you know, the, the crime boom would continue through the 2010s. And of course, that proved to be wrong and you know, proved to be wrong because we, we learned that we could actually uh, do something about it and didn't need to be a slave to, to demographic patterns. And so, you know, that, that's what I think was, was probably mostly at the root. You know, I mean, there's some people who say kind of the softening of criminal justice policy through litigation, you know, with the Warren Court in the 1960s and 70s, you know, was important. You saw decisions like Miranda come down and, you know, you know, Garner, Tennessee versus Garner, et cetera. But, you know, I think for the most part, you know, those, those things were probably marginal in their impact. So yeah, so so I want to I want to sort of bring this also connect this to to what Aaron was talking in the introduction. I think there's there's one to the extent the criminal justice system drove the decline in crime. You know, I think that there are two factors we can talk about. One is that we did dramatically more incapacitation. We and you know I think particularly should have embraced more aggressive use of more aggressive prosecution, locking people up more as sort of a brute force method. And then two is that the police got much more proactive, where for decades, we really didn't really believe we police would purely policing was purely a reactive matter, you sort of went investigate that fact. One of the great insights, particularly in the 90s was that policing could be a proactive matter that you could, you know, go out and walk the beat and engage with crime and, you know, charge people often on, on pretextual offenses before they committed major offenses. I mean, Sure. But that's precisely why the state exists, right? I mean, if you go back, you know, to the founding of this country, I mean, you know, you can read Common Sense, right, or, or, or Federalist 51, where, you know, our founders are basically acknowledging, look, I mean, if men were angels, right, no government would be necessary. If we were, you know, if our consciences were always clear and abided by us, you know, there would be no need for, for supervision by the state. But of course, men are not angels and our consciences are not always clear. And so, you know, the state exists precisely because of this recognition, which means that, yeah, there's always going to be that trade-off, but, but it's, it's absolutely necessary because there's a trade-off on the other end, right? If, if the state doesn't come in and fill that void, you know, you have a couple of, of, of possible things that happen and likely all at the same time. One is that you see an increase in vigilantism. You know, and I, I think we see that now. I mean, a lot of the cycles of retaliatory violence that characterize, you know, the gang wars on the south and west side of Chicago, for example, are a reflection of the the sort of delta between what the, the predominant view is of the appropriate response to certain conduct is between the gangs and the state, right? The state is prepared to do X, the gangs are prepared to do X plus, you know, 10. And so they don't look to the state, right? And so you know, I think it's really important for for people to have the state step into that role because it and not only relieves us of that responsibility and, you know, sort of 
gives us the ability to go out into the economy and be more productive with our time, right? I mean, my, my property law professor in law school used to talk about the 12 gauge solution being why property law exists, right? Because if we didn't have property law, we would all just be so insecure. We would feel so insecure that, that we would just sit on our porches with a 12 gauge and, and, you know, protect our property. And so, you know, the, there are certainly costs, but I think the benefits outweigh the costs, right? I mean, if the government didn't play this role, you would see, you know, that vigilantism, you would see that that sense of insecurity manifest itself in, in really harmful ways, right? You would see also for the people and institutions that have the financial ability, you would see people put physical distance between themselves and the places where crime concentrates in a way that would be really harmful for those jurisdictions. I'm thinking here of like cities like Detroit, which literally died like before our eyes. We watched an entire city that was once, you know, one of America's most celebrated urban centers, you know, have, we watched it flatline. I mean, and it flatlined in part because everyone who could afford to live there left. I mean, everyone who could afford to live somewhere else left as crime got out of control, right? We didn't see, we saw a drying up of all the investments you know, that used to flow into that city. And and that's that's what happens when you lose control of the streets. And so, you know, yeah, there's there's a trade-off. Yes, the state is going to drastically increase the role that it plays in managing the population. But I would just say, I mean, the whole reason that the state exists is for that. I mean, you know, this gets at what I think is the sort of fundamental disagreement between left and right today in America, which is that I think the right understands government is kind of a necessary evil that is supposed to play a very limited role. You know, the risk is always that when you empower the state to do anything, that it might abuse that power in important ways. And so we have to guard against that. And we do, right? I mean, we, we guard against that through institutions like the Constitution, right? Which, you know, has a Fourth Amendment and says like, okay, the police just can't use any evidence that they get by any means against you, right? We're going to set some rules. And, you know, we're going to make sure you get a lawyer and we're going to make sure that they have to try you with no general warrants, right? You know, so so... I think we were aware of that and and built out our government in a way that was, you know, at least in theory, meant to minimize, you know, that that risk that's inherent in empowering the state to do anything. Whereas the left, I think, views government as primarily a sort of caretaker, you know, a, a provider of services and, you know, things that we all need to survive. And, you know, should it should kind of take a back seat on things like enforcement. And I think undergirding that is the mistaken belief that, you know, at the root of the kind of crime that governments exist to, you know, help control is, you know, economic deprivation. And I think that view is just wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think there's also a, a kind of self-deception at the heart of the the progressive vision in that to provide these services, ultimately, there has to be coercion of anyone who doesn't voluntarily do them. And of course, you know, the premise of the state providing the services is that people won't voluntarily provide them. And, and so I think you do tend to see kind of aggressivism that shapes at kind of overt and undisguised applications of force in our cities, but nonetheless, is is perfectly comfortable with applying force in all sorts of other ways. It's just kind of hidden and obfuscated. I wanted to actually, so Charles, I, I don't know where you wanted to go next, but I have, I have a question, which is, you know, one way to, I think, mitigate the trade-off between civil liberties and civil peace is to have a very competent and professional, well-funded police force that is able to discriminate between, you know, okay, that guy's really bad and we need to shoot our gun here versus no, let's hold off. And, you know, we don't know yet if he's a bad guy, right? You need people who are trained to make those kinds of judgments effectively. Talk about how this sort of wave of anti-cop sentiment has affected, perhaps for the worse, the kind of professionalization of police departments. Yeah, well, I think first it's really important just to say that I, I think that the professionalization of policing as an institution was a huge, huge development. I think, you know, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and even 80s, you know, policing was viewed very much as just kind of a blue-collar job that you did. You know, it, it wasn't what 
it became in the late 1990s and 2000s, where it was seen as a real profession with actual science behind it. You know, obviously, you're always going to need the kind of person that has the disposition to find, you know, it attractive enough to do this kind of job that to, you know, the idea of like, chasing somebody down a dark alley and tackling them, even though they might have a gun. And, you know, so, so it, you, you still need a, a certain kind of person in those roles. But one of the things that happened as we invested in policing in the 1990s was we saw it really become a profession as opposed to just, uh, you know, an occupation. And I think that's an important distinction. And as a result, I, I think that's at the core of why we saw measures like use of force decline pretty significantly between the 1970s and the 1990s and, you know, between the 1990s and the early aughts and between the early aughts and, you know, modern times. I mean, it, there's, there's been a pretty steady decline that, that took us through about 2005, 2010, maybe, and, and has leveled off for the most part. And so, you know, when you have something like that, it's really important to kind of just recognize the value in it and hold on to it. Unfortunately, our memories are very short and, you know, the sort of nature of our news cycle is not particularly conducive to that kind of approach that, that values a long historical memory. And so what we've seen recently is just this rabid demonization of the institution as a whole in the wake of, you know, what are frankly you know, statistically rare outlier incidents that go viral. And that has done a couple of things. One, I think it has increased the level of vitriol directed at members of this profession, and that has an effect. The other thing is it has spurred on the creation of a cottage industry that seeks to undermine the institution at every turn through litigation, whether that's, you know, civil rights litigation or, you know, other kinds of like, you know, class action suits brought to, you know, achieve policy changes, et cetera. And then, you know, it's also led to real policy decisions that are aimed at sort of constricting the power that the profession has to do its job in ways that maybe make the job more risky for the people doing it. Risky in the sense that, you know, as policies, you know, lower the transaction costs of crime, you know, again, one of the things I, I always say is like the people who bear the cost of that are the people that are living in the pockets of concentrated crime, but also the people working in the pockets of concentrated crime to, to reduce it. And that's cops, right? I mean, cops are probably spending as much time on the street in the most dangerous neighborhoods as the residents of those neighborhoods. And we forget that. And so they're sharing in that risk that's exacerbated by bad policy on the criminal justice front. And that, I think, you know, plays into the overall calculation of people when choosing whether or not to go into that profession. But, you know, we also just see policies that, you know, are, are just very clear expressions of disapproval that, again, sap the morale of people doing that job. And so as a result, the cumulative effect of that, I think, has been over the last several years to dissuade people from taking the job to encourage people who are on the job to leave it, or to encourage officers who are currently working in urban environments where the risk of injury and or ending up involved in a viral incident are heightened to take a job in a usually higher paying, but less busy suburban or exurban locale where their risk is, is probably minimal of either of those two things. And so, you know, I think we're starting to see already in some cases, but you know, we'll we'll definitely see the effect of this moving forward. Is you know a deterioration in the quality of the service that we're getting from this institution. You know, if you dissuade people who are highly educated, who are psychologically stable, from doing this job, you're going to have to fill those positions with someone. And you know, we're already seeing departments around the country lower standards or you know, get rid of standards or, you know, shorten the list of, of things that would have disqualified you from a career in policing in the recent past. And what that means is that the, the sort of, you know, the delta between the typical cop and the typical perp is going to start to shrink. And that's not going to be good. I mean, we saw what that was like in the 1970s and 80s when corruption in policing was, you know, a huge, huge problem. I mean, you know, think back on like, you know, 
a movie like American Gangster or, you know, a documentary like Seven Five. I mean, you know, those were based on real truth. I mean, policing was corrupt. I mean, there were a lot of people who were wearing badges who were no different than the criminals that they were tasked with arresting in a lot of ways. And, and the professionalization of the institution rooted that out. And so we're, we're putting that at risk right now in a really big way. And so, you know, one of the things that I've called for is just renewed investment in the institution in order to preserve the, you know, the, the ranks right now that we have, but also in order to attract high achieving people into the profession in the future. I mean, you know, I know Charles knows this, but, you know, I, I thought about a career in policing when I was a senior in college. My father's an NYPD detective or was an NYPD detective. He retired in the early 2000s. He was joined the NYPD in the early 80s. So, you know, so this was something I kind of grew up around that was attractive to me as an idea. You know, I used to like to scrap a little bit when I was in high school. So, you know, I had that kind of adventurous side that, that uh, you know, I thought might make it a, a fun career. And so, you know, I took the NYPD exam my senior year of college and I, I did very, very well. My, my hiring number was one, which meant that I scored the highest out of my whole co cohort on the test. And I told my dad this with great pride and he talked me out of a career in policing. And if you would have listened to the speeches and the arguments, you know, that happened, this is 2010, you know, they, they would have sounded like an exit interview of, you know, police officers resigning from urban departments today. You know, he was basically like, look, you know, you can be, you know, the best cop for eight years and you have one fight that looks bad on camera. You make the front page of the news and you'll get thrown under the bus or you'll get sued. Yeah. And, you know, it's not worth it. You're not going to save the world. No one's going to remember any of the good things that you do, you know, and he was really jaded. And that, I think, had an effect on my choice to ultimately go to law school. Now, I'm not saying I would have been the best cop or anything like that, but I, I think that it's fair to say that we want, you know, people who are passionate about public safety, who are intelligent, who are psychologically stable and highly motivated to pursue that career more often than not. And I think right now the incentive structure is such that, you know, people who have options are much less likely to choose a career in policing. So I think we want to talk about solutions in a minute to wrap up. But before we do that, I want to I just want to talk a little bit and ask you about sort of a theme in your work, something you brought up a couple of times. There's sort of the lots of ways to think about why crime happens. You alluded to sort of routine activities theory. Um, I think there are also, you know, deprivation theories, strain theories, whatever. One one sort of version of this is, you know, there people get crimes because they're poor, people with kinds of lack of opportunity because of positions intersecting systems of oppression. You talked about sort of the the concentration of crime in very small numbers of individuals. I know you talk a little bit about sort of your work on the criminal type, on the crime as entitlement, and how you sort of think about criminals as a specific social problem requiring a specific solution as opposed to being just a subset of the general problem of sort of social deprivation pathology. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, I have a, a different view from, you know, the people that subscribe to the deprivation theory. I, I don't think that crime, especially violent crime, this is probably less true for property crime, but for violent crime, you know, I, I don't think deprivation is a driver of it at all. I see crime as primarily psychological in nature. You know, there is a lot of research that I've been digging into over the last few years in the 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 field of psychology that I think pretty convincingly makes the following case, which is that when you have young children who develop conduct disorders at a young age, particularly young male children whose conduct disorders are more likely to manifest in outward facing aggression as opposed to internalizing behavior like self-harm, for example, or eating disorders, which are much more common among females. You know, those conduct disorders, if not headed off in early childhood, can metastasize very quickly up through the point of adolescence. And in fact, those conduct disorders are actually really predictive of juvenile delinquency in adolescence. And unfortunately, there's not a whole lot that the research tells us that we can do to successfully intervene psychologically to head um, those disorders off. But basically, the path to criminality, as I see it, is largely one that starts with early childhood conduct disorders that then metastasize. And when they do, you know, 
they can get exacerbated. The effects of those disorders can get exacerbated by the environment, by exposure to trauma, by exposure to antisocial people in your life who will, you know, who can introduce you into criminal networks, for example, and by crime itself, right? So as you become more delinquent, sometimes your delinquency will beget more delinquency. And, you know, that often leads to, you know, really deep-rooted psychological conditions, things like antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, substance use disorders, and, you know, comorbidity between those things. So, you know, you may have a substance use disorder and antisocial personality disorder. And, you know, I suspect that some of the listeners are thinking, well, what makes you say this? And, you know, the data point that that stood out to me when I first read it and really just sat me down and made me rethink how I thought about crime was the prevalence of antisocial personality disorder in carceral settings. So in the general population here in the United States, somewhere between two and 4% of men you know, depending on, on on which estimates you go by, somewhere between two and four percent of men have or develop antisocial personality disorder. And I'm using that in the clinical sense, right? I'm talking about, you know, what's listed in the DSM. In prison settings, the estimates range between 40 and 70 percent. That is massive. What that means is that within prison settings, antisocial personality disorder is far more common even than poverty is among the the prisoners in terms of you know their life experience and you know when i learned that and really dug into the the literature it it, it really you know I, th- I think cemented me in this view that at the root of crime is psychology it's a psychological it's a manifestation of a psychological disposition you know that's not necessarily true for everyone right i mean there's the one-off offender and they're you know uh, are other elements that I think, you know, are important things like culture, for example, but I do see crime as, as, as something that is deeply influenced by psychology. And so, you know, you mentioned the crime as entitlement idea. This was, you know, came from a a paper that I co-authored with two trained psychologists who, who do a lot of work in, in the criminology space, Matt DeLisi and John Paul Wright basically, you know, teasing out the role that psychological entitlement, and that's, again, you know, using that term entitlement in the clinical sense, the role that it plays in crime. And, you know, entitlement is something that is common to conduct disorders. It's common to people who have antisocial personality disorders. And if you, you know, look at the case studies of people who have been persistent over their life course in offending, you will see really similar thinking patterns across pretty diverse populations of offenders, right? I mean, there's a a really fantastic book called Inside the Criminal Mind. Samino is the guy's last name. I can't remember his first name now. But, you know, he he profiles all kinds of offenders, even white collar, you know, Ivy League educated guys who, you know, embezzle money and then, you know, an uneducated street drug dealer and their thinking patterns are very, very similar. And so, you know, I think the more that we understand crime as, you know, something that has psychological roots, the sooner we can get away from the idea that we can spend our way out of the crime problem. And, you know, I think that'll also get us to a point in which we really begin to appreciate more deeply than we do now the importance of early childhood development, right? I mean, there's a very small window in which we can successfully socialize children. And when you fail to socialize children within that window, the risk of a conduct disorder goes to the roof. And when you have a conduct disorder, the risk of criminality goes to the roof. And it doesn't take long before, you know, a kid with a conduct disorder gets into the kind of trouble that he can't come back from. You know, you rob, you know, you steal a candy bar is one thing, you know, then you upgrade to, you know, robbing a convenience store. You know, if someone dies in that robbery, you've, you're, that's felony murder now. Your life has changed, right? You can't come back from that. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that that is one way in which, you know, people on sort of who share my view of, you know, crime and justice, I think differ from the kind of typical reformer who, you know, maybe sees later life offenders as more redeemable than I do. And and it's not, you know, it's not that the people who I, I, I feel are, you know, probably irredeemable or close enough to irredeemable that it, you know, makes sense that we should try to maximize their incapacitation. 
it's not that like this isn't a judgment of them on a personal level it's just a recognition of the fact that you know this failure that happened early on in their lives is not something that we know how to correct we should keep trying to figure out ways to do it but until we do i think we owe a responsibility to the rest of the community to keep them safe from the habits that those individuals are unlikely to get away from in part because you know crime is itself criminogenic again you know you can have someone who's on the margin and you know maybe they're friends with some guys who aren't you know doing the right thing necessarily and you know one of their friends gets jumped and then they participate in a retaliation fight and then that just kicks off a cycle where you know before the kid knows it he's steeped in a gang culture that you know takes him off a track i mean so cleaning up and controlling crime and disorder i think is really really important to minimizing the risk that's associated with crime that goes beyond just victimization, right? Things like the psychological trauma that exposure to crime causes, things like the, you know, the impact on educational attainment that exposure to crime causes. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting research, you know, laying out the externalities of crime on communities. And, you know, it's 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 really, I think, at the root of what drives my work in this. It's not, you know, I think people confuse my position as one that reflects antipathy for offenders primarily, which, and I'm sure there's there's certainly some of that, right? I'll, I'll be the first to acknowledge it. But, you know, more than anything else, it's really a deep sympathy for victims. And to, I define victims as beyond just the person who's going to get stolen from or shot. Right. I'm talking about institutional victims, communities, neighborhoods, you know, broad senses of security and pride in the place where one lives. You know, all of that is put at risk when when crime is not controlled. So I think we want to end by talking about possible solutions, which is obviously a, a, a huge topic. And you've already touched on stuff like in more investments, things like that. I figured it might be good in closing to ask about qualified immunity and other various proposals to increase accountability and legal accountability in particular for police officers. What do you make of those proposals? What are some of the risks with them? And broadly, just what's your framework for balancing the need for police to be held accountable for you know, gross misbehavior with the need for police to, frankly, be able to make split-second decisions about when to discharge their weapon, understanding that sometimes they are, through no fault of their own, going to get it wrong because that's the world we live in. Yeah, I mean, I think the best approach is to focus on minimizing the likelihood of things going south. And the way that you do that is by investing in high-quality police forces. High-quality police forces are going to make fewer mistakes. You're going to have fewer bad apples acting out of malevolence. You're going to have fewer instances in which people fail to control the adrenaline rush and sense of aggression that gets triggered by, you know, an unruly interaction or something like that. So that's, I think, the most important thing that we can do. I think, by and large, the accountability measures are pretty good. I know it's an unpopular thing to say, but, you know, take the qualified immunity debate, for example. Right? Like, at the root of that debate is this idea that police, because of the existence of the doctrine of qualified immunity, which, you know, just for your guess, you may not know what it is, it's just a legal defense within that's apl applicable only in lawsuits brought under a particular federal law, which is laid out in Title 42 of the U.S. Code under Section 1983. You know, the law creates a cause of action for individuals to sue agents of the state for violations of their federal civil rights. And the immunity doctrine basically reflects a, a desire to protect against ex post facto liability for, you know, violations of rights that were not established before the violation took place. And, you know, for example, just to kind of highlight this, right, the Fifth Amendment, we're told by Miranda, requires police to sort of recite this incantation, you know, of rights. We've all heard it if you've seen a police procedural, right? I mean, you know, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you. No cop thought that, you know, they had to affirmatively apprise people 
of that right before Miranda came down, you know, it would be silly to hold a police officer civilly and personally liable for failing to make an individual aware during an arrest that took place before the Miranda decision came down, right? So you want to protect against ex post facto liability. That's not a new concept in Anglo-American jurisprudence. But what people who critique qualified immunity say is that police officers take with them a sense of immunity into the field and misbehave in ways that they wouldn't otherwise misbehave if the immunity doctrine didn't exist. And I think that's wrong for a couple of reasons. One is that you know, when you're talking about use of force, which is where this debate really always kicks off from, right? It's 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 almost always a use of force incident that that you know resurfaces this particular debate. Police officers don't uh, make decisions through an analytical framework in a use of force situation. They're not thinking before they throw a punch, like, will I be able to get away with this based on? you know, the state of legal precedence in my jurisdiction such that I can avail myself of an immunity defense if this guy sues me, right? Like the research pretty clearly shows that police officers, when they're in use of force situations, are reverting to their instincts, their training, they're 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 not using an analytical framework. And so that's one. Two, you know, the the sort of critical theory of of QI presupposes that police officers are capable of successfully making that kind of legal determination without any formal legal training, which I think is is probably a step too far, which is not, you know, it's not a knock on cops, but, you know, most of them are not formally trained in the law and really smart lawyers can often disagree about whether, you know, something constitutes a search under the Fourth Amendment, right? You see dissents in, you know, appellate cases on on that very question. And so the idea that we should assume a sort of 100% accuracy rate on the part of police and their ability to calculate their likelihood of, you know, liability is, is I think, a bit silly. But empirically, the evidence tells us that qualified immunity doesn't play a very big role in police litigation as it is. You know, the vast majority of lawsuits filed against police are resolved in favor of the plaintiffs, either through a settlement or through a verdict, and the ones that that are resolved in favor of the police are usually resolved in favor of the police or overwhelmingly resolved in favor of the police on some other ground besides immunity you know either some procedural infirmity or you know a, a lack of sufficient evidence etc you know only about 3 and a half to 4% of cases filed against police are dismissed or granted summary judgment in whole or in part on the basis of qualified immunity. That's not a lot. And so, you know, I I think it's just overstated. And I think that's present in a lot of, you know, the proposals, the police reform proposals that we're told, you know, are going to drastically minimize police use of force rates. I mean, you can take something like ending the 1033 program, which is a program through which police departments get excess military equipment. There are a handful of high quality studies on this and the results are mixed. I mean, you know, one finds, a couple of recent ones actually found, you know, statistically significant effects that take the form of increasing the rate of use of force. But, you know, other studies find that they decrease the rates of, of injury to suspects and police and that they also decrease crime. You know, even if we assume that the studies showing that it increases force are right, the effect sizes are small. This is not likely to drive you know, a massive change in the way that police officers use force and the rate at which they use force. And you know, I think for me, the biggest thing is that the public just doesn't have a very good understanding of how often cops actually use force, how often they use deadly force or any other kinds of force. And then they don't really have a good sense of what the dynamics of a use of force situation are. I think that partly owes to the fact that most Americans, thankfully, right, I think this is probably a good thing in the end, but most Americans have never been in a fight, right? Like, you know, you've never been punched in the face. You've never had to wrestle somebody down who, you know, controlling a grown man who doesn't want to be controlled is not easy. And, you know, I think the lack of sense of what that's like creates an unrealistic expectation of police that, you know, I I think is reflected in how these critiques are lobbed at the institution. And so, you know, I think the public just 
needs to understand how rare use of force actually is. I mean, you know, I've talked about this a lot, but just some quick descriptive statistics. I mean, you know, from the NYPD in 2021, they fielded 6.4 million calls for service. They made over 166,000 arrests. I think they used force in about 3% of those arrests. The overwhelming, more than 90% of the force incidents were just level one force, right? Just going hands-on, taking somebody down to the ground and cuffing them up. You know, any less than 1% were, you know, electric conduction weapons. I think they only had 36 firearm discharges in that entire data set. You know, other studies have shown that police departments use physical force in, you know, 1% of arrests. So, you know, that's not a, a particularly big range. And it, I think there's a disconnect between the reality and what the public has in their head. I mean, you see all kinds of surveys that have come out in the last several years where people think cops shoot 10,000 unarmed black men a year or, you know, and there's obviously a, a disparity there in terms of what's in people's heads and, and what the reality is. But, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, that was kind of a rambling roundabout answer, but I think a lot of the <laughs> reform proposals are just disconnected from that reality of how rare police use of force is. You know, they don't recognize how little room for improvement there is in the sense that so much progress has been made over the last 30 years on this front. And, you know, I think they overestimate the likely effect of these proposals on use of force, and they underestimate the potential effect of these proposals on crime, public safety, and police morale. Why don't we take that as an opportunity to uh, do some closing thoughts? Aaron, what's, what's your takeaway from the conversation? Well, just as we were recording, it's a really funny tweet from a coddled affluent professional he says, idea for an exploitation film. Woman is terrorized by violent man who keeps being let out of jail by Soros DA and has to take law into her own hands. It's funny, but I, I think it actually gets at something real, which we haven't quite touched on, but it's the depolicing that the logical conclusion of this program seems to be a kind of privatization of public safety. And that's the other thing that I find very disturbing. We, we were drawing comparisons to the third world earlier in other countries or, or war-torn countries. And, you know, another comparison you could draw is to places like South Africa, where people have their own private security forces, basically, because the state, I mean, barely, if at all, has anything like a monopoly on violence as we would consider it conceive of it in the US because there's just so much crime and, and the cops often don't do anything. And to me, that's just the that that's always been my kind of, you know, dystopian tail risk fear that if this movement goes too far, you really do start to get into a a kind of, you know, post public model of policing where we kind of revert to private everyone has rich people have their own private fiefdoms with security guards to keep them safe and everyone else is just subject to the state of nature. Hopefully that doesn't happen, Charles. I don't know. What are, what are your closing thoughts? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I, I, I'm sympathetic to, to Ralph's point earlier that, you know, safety is actually sort of a prerequisite of, of liberty broadly construed. I think that's basically right. And, you know, I think we, we sort of tried to talk very broadly throughout this conversation. We, we avoided talking about criminal justice reform, which is, for example, the criminal justice system. Because I think Ralph's which I broadly share, unsurprisingly, because we work together. Is is a you know says says safety is an undervalued good relative to lots of other things. We probably value safety more highly. I think that's a important takeaway from the conversation. Why don't we do some quick recommendations, Aaron? Do you have something for our listeners this week? Yeah, a few weeks ago, Tucker Carlson actually interviewed Bukele, the El Salvadorian president, on his Today Show. So it's like a hour long interview. It's quite good in those longer interview form formats. I think Tucker tends to be a little less of a perhaps bombier or provocateur than he is on Fox primetime. And he asked the guy interesting questions. And the guy who speaks extremely good English for a foreign head of state actually gives very, very good, thoughtful answers. You know, I, I realize that we're all supposed to hate him and, and disavow, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the guy, the guy clearly is not an idiot. He's thought about what he's doing. And he's quite eloquent in that forum. So if you want to hear kind of a sympathetic perspective on El Salvador's gang crackdown from the guy who engineered it, I recommend that interview. Well, I'm going to I'm gonna scoop Ralph and recommend his book, Criminal Justice, with a push for decarceration, depolicing, gets wrong and who it hurts most. You can buy it like everywhere. And, you know, I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's sort of a longer form summary of some of the, uh, some of the topics that we hit. This is, you know, valuable. Basically, everything in the market is, is you know, pro-criminal justice form, pro 
crime stuff and then there's ralph so it's an important kind of point even if you don't fully agree with him it's worth reading ralph do you need recommendations for our listeners from your own work yeah yeah i'm going to pay back the favor and point to the article that you charles co-authored with raihan salam in the atlantic on the need to properly fund our police which is a, a sort of prelude to an amazing paper that's forthcoming from you which i hope everyone will read once the manhattan institute puts it out but you know it's an underappreciated point to make that you you guys, I think, made extremely well in that essay. And that point is that you kind of get what you pay for when it comes to policing and criminal justice. And, you know, it may seem counterintuitive to people who are critical of the excesses of the criminal justice system or the shortcomings of the criminal justice system. But ironically, one of the best ways to mitigate the risks associated with both of those things is to properly fund it. And and if we invest in it, it's going to be good for everyone. And you know, I, I hope that, you know, that convinced more people to sort of open their view up to that. But it was an incredibly well-written and thoughtful piece that I think everyone should read. Well, that's, that's very nice Amen. of you. Thank you. Thank you, Ralph, for joining us in Institutionalized. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, compliments, concerns, arrest warrants you'd like to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. I think that's about all the time we're giving to this episode. So until next time, I'm Charles Fain Lehman. I'm Aaron Sparian. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. You'll join us again soon. 